Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Ando. And I'm Fer. And we host Niñas Bien Podcast. We want to invite you to listen to our show. Niñas Bien means good girls in Spanish. But you have to know that this is not a podcast for good girls. Or for girls at all. It is a comedy podcast. So everyone is welcome to listen. We talk about sex, relationships, technology. We recommend movies and TV shows and discuss pop culture in general. And there is Chisme Ajeno too. A section we have just to gossip about everyone. So you'll find something you like here. And you'll practice your Spanish. The cleanest Spanish you'll find, we promise. And if you already hablas español, vamos a hacer tus nuevas amigas. amigas. We'll be your friends for the non-Spanish speakers. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Hosted by Acast and available to all audio platforms. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. It's a tale as old as time. Someone comes in with a grand proclamation. They're going to save the news industry. That person, usually wealthy, usually not a journalist, says they're going to transform journalism. They're going to make it sustainable and invest in real news. And at first, it seems to work. But after a few months or years, the promise falls flat. First comes layoffs, then downsizing, finally admissions that the model isn't working the way they thought it would. Okay, maybe it's only a tale as old as the past decade or so, 
But there's been a pattern of these kinds of overhauls in journalism, where big promises are made by people who seem to have the secret sauce that will solve all of the industry's problems. And then the growth that was promised doesn't happen. And that's what some say has happened over the last couple of weeks at Overstory Media Group. See, in 2021, Farhan Mohammed, the former editor-in-chief of Daily Hive, teamed up with tech entrepreneur Andrew Wilkinson and launched Overstory Media Group, or OMG. They said they'd revitalize Canadian news by expanding to over 250 journalists at 50 outlets by 2023. They said they already had a handful of small outlets that were succeeding, and that brings us to now. The network has expanded to 12 outlets, including several new publications and the acquisition of two existing brands. But that 50 goal was not even close to being reached. And on January 30th, they terminated four-star journalists at Victoria's Capital Daily, halving their editorial team and telling staff that their financial losses had led them to reconsider their focus on hard news. They said they needed to focus more on community, on things that made their city seem like a great place. There was a lot of pushback from readers, concerned their beloved local news source would turn into something akin to an early BuzzFeed. And staff seemed to be revolting too. A union was announced the next day. And leaked tape from several staff meetings began floating around to reporters. There were accusations that OMG executives tried to interfere in the editorial process. And the two founders responded to their critics. In nearly 100 revealing tweets, they admitted they were losing money, saying that people didn't want to pay for journalism. Tech millionaire Wilkinson tweeted in a long thread that, quote, if you give someone a chance to do something that is a big swing slash has a low probability of success, then you need to be 100% ready to have them hate your guts with a passion. Farhan Mohammed tweeted that, quote, most journalists don't understand business, but worse, they don't care to. I'm Sheree Sutran, sitting in for Jesse Brown. This week, Jonathan Goldsby and I give you an inside look at the fallout at Overstory Media and what it means for the future of journalism, for enterprising tech millionaires, and for the state of democracy overall. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Morgan Boyko, Brian Page, Adam Turnbull, Jean Sarazen, Raymond Moti, Brona McEvoy, Keegan White, and Rosemary. Hi, I'm Rosemary from Waterloo, Ontario. I support Canada Land because I appreciate what I've learned from the different seasons of Commons, the variety of voices I've met on the main podcast feed, but mostly because of the perpetually irreverent tone of Wag the Doug. It's definitely my favorite show, and it suits my no BS approach to life. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Cherise. So let's address the obvious. Why is Jesse not in the host chair today? Well, ever since Twitter went down, he's been inconsolable. Just sits with his laptop in the whisper room, hitting refresh, refresh, refresh. No, no, Jesse's doing just fine. And Twitter, as of this recording, is is still working just well enough. Jesse's not here because he has a conflict with one of the subjects of today's show and has therefore recused himself. I thought Jesse loves conflict. Yes, but not, thankfully, conflicts of interest. One of the people we're talking about today, as you've alluded to in the intro, is Andrew Wilkinson, a BC multimillionaire, not 
quite yet a billionaire, whose foundation is an investor in Canada Land. In spring 2020, Canada Land struck a deal with Wilkinson's Tiny Foundation, that's what it's called, the Tiny Foundation, that would see the organization pump a total of a million dollars into Canada Land in monthly installments spread out over three years. But while Tiny is a nonprofit, it's not a charity, and so this isn't a, a contribution exactly, but rather a convertible loan. So at the end of the three-year period, the Tiny Foundation will get a stake in this company somewhere between like 10 and 16% or so of the total ownership, depending on how much of that loan has been paid back. So they'll become part owner of Canada Land? I mean, yes, they will. And to be clear, that's the Tiny Foundation, not Tiny Capital, which is Wilkinson's multi-million dollar for-profit holding company. But I should also note that all the voting shares in Canada Land will continue to be held by Jesse Brown, who's uh, the, the founder and publisher. And the agreement with Tiny has a specific clause, which Jesse highlighted when first announcing the investment to our supporters three years ago. The clause reads, The Tiny Foundation shall not have any involvement, influence, or control in the editorial decisions or process of Canada Land media. So why do they want a piece of it? Well, also from the June 2020 email that Jesse wrote, any money they get back from us, the Tiny Foundation will reinvest into Canadian journalism, end quote, by basically repeating the process with other new startups. I guess we use that tiny money for what it's there for, reporting on Canadian media, which just so happens to be linked to Tiny. Yeah, let's see how much we can Ouroboros it. So let's start from the beginning. When Overstory Media was founded, there were promises of building a news company that would hire 250 journalists over the next two years. They would revitalize local media. The jewel of that crown was the Capital Daily. In 2019, Andrew Wilkinson had started Capital Daily in his hometown of Victoria, and he hired a journalist to deliver local news to readers' inboxes. It showed surprising growth. In just a year, they had over 40,000 subscribers and growing ad revenue. This is kind of an astounding number in the local news world, but they seem to have really cracked the code on what that community wanted. They claimed that they were making a ton of money off of expanding and creating similar outlets in other local communities. A story in The Logic from 2022 reported on a leaked pitch deck that OMG was using to get investors. The story said the pitch deck promised OMG would be the Chipotle for news, referring to their high profitability in a short time span, and that there was, quote, a billion-dollar monopoly opportunity lurking in local news. They kind of held themselves out as the saviors of local journalism in Canada and were held up by others as a potential model to be replicated elsewhere, outside of Canada. Overstory Media Group. Their model is to build subscribers through a newsletter news publishing mechanism, and they're in a massive growth mode, so large that they are now looking to hire over 250 journalists, employ them as they launch 50 new platforms throughout North America. What's their business model? How are they growing? Well, we're going to find out by the CEO and co-founder, Farhan Mohammed. They got all kinds of good news headlines around the world, Characterized by The Guardian's 50 news outlets, 250 journalists, Canadian startup unveils plans to revive local news, which was published under The Guardian's Upside banner for stories that look at possible solutions to the world's ills. And that number, 250 journalists, is what really caught broad attention. I mean, I guess I would say I was a bit more skeptical, but like it didn't seem 
totally implausible. And I think it was that degree of plausibility that made it such an enticing story. It seemed plausible because like this idea of one rich guy who happens to like really like journalism enthusiastically throwing money towards a bunch of journalists. It didn't seem like out of the question because I mean like isn't that kind of everyone's dream that one day some rich person will see the value in what they do and then put a crap ton of money towards helping them do it? That is kind of the dream. And in Victoria, the Capital Daily was doing exactly what OMG's founders claimed, which was essentially cementing themselves as a vital source of news in the local community. Here's Cassidy villaran Baracus, our own associate producer who happens to live in Victoria and was a subscriber to Capital Daily. I think the Capital Daily was important for the community because they provided kind of a granule level of local coverage to important issues that we face here in Victoria, from housing to healthcare to the environment to municipal news. I just thought it was really important as an alternative because the other news sources that are local uh, from TV, talk radio and the Times Colonist, which is our kind of newspaper of record here in Victoria, They kind of all kind of speak more to an older population. They had a podcast that ran for a period of time that was really cool and interesting and explored different issues that I really loved. And then here's Kate Elizabeth Corte, also a reader and a former freelancer for Capital Daily. The options were pretty limited to like working in radio or in communication somehow or working for black press. It seemed like there was a possibility that young journalists could actually have a chance of staying in the community where they went to university and contributing with their skills and with the relationships they had built to an actual career in journalism. So when four staff were terminated on January 30th, it came as a shock. Specifically, it was because of exactly who had been fired. Managing editor Jimmy Thompson, as well as Bridgie Bassow, Shannon Waters, Jolene Rudisuela, who made up some of the main editorial staff. I will say that I was completely shocked by the firings. I was surprised because I feel that Jimmy and also Bushy and Shannon were extremely well-received by the community and had really grown relations in Victoria and built a lot of trust here. I think of the people that are gone, and they were as smart as they come, as capable as they come. I was really frustrated because it felt like they just completely gutted their team and gutted their ability to report out these stories that I thought were incredibly valuable to the community. So I had some choice words for them. I just didn't want to subscribe to the Capital Daily anymore. Canadaland has obtained tape from the meeting with the remaining staff held right after the firings that day. We've heard from the rest of your team this morning, but if you haven't, um, Jimmy, Bushley, Jolene, and Shannon are no longer part of the Capital Daily team as of this morning. Farhan Mohammed, OMG's co-founder and CEO, said they were losing money because people weren't paying for news. Da, da, da. We went really hard on news on it and like trying to figure that out. And then on in-depth investigations, and the assumption was we were going to see this influx of people paying for it. And that didn't happen as much. We thought that the market would adapt, we would continue growing our subscribers, but it's clear that people don't want to pay for the journalism. He said things just weren't working, especially at Capital Daily, which they'd previously held up as the proof of concept for the whole enterprise. From a purely revenue side, it scares the shit out of me. And said a couple of weeks ago, like, we need to double our revenue, we need to 
we, this is what we need to do over the next six months. When I look at Cap Daily, we cannot and should not be in a position where we're going to lose a third of our revenue. That scares me to death when Cap Daily should be our, is our flagship. Cap Daily should be the thing that has this giant moat around it and no one can come and touch us. That's where it should be. Mohammed spoke of a move from focusing on journalism to what he called community engagement. And this is where I say, like, the things that we've been trying, this is where, like, community engagement come into play. And I heard this when I was in Victoria, and I asked someone, you know, community leader, and I said, uh, you know, what do you think of Cap Daily? And they said, you know, I know that Victoria is an awesome place, but when I read Capital Daily, it seems like Victoria is the shittiest place on earth. There's so many good people that are doing good things. There are so many businesses. There are so many, like, you name it, that are here and existing. But why is the newsletter not being that voice? There was some pushback from the staff. It's incredibly confusing to have the people who put out the daily news and the weekly news gone. Um, Do you know for sure, like, what people are subscribing to? And my impression is that it's for the news. It's for the original reporting. Yeah. Um, I think it's the... I think we have been trying. We've been trying things over the past three, six plus months. And you know, we've been losing subscribers for a long time. You know, one answer is, do we invest more in journalism? And we did that. We tried that. And that also hasn't worked. There was another meeting a week later, February 6th, which was also leaked to us. Farhan wanted to take more questions from the staff. There was an assumption that these four journalists had been laid off, which would theoretically mean that business had dried up, and that they could be brought back when or if it returned. This was not the case. Nor was it the case that it was directly about money. Yeah, uh, so I do think we could have done a better job communicating. I will clarify, it wasn't a layoff. We terminated people uh, without cause. It wasn't directly cost-related. So I will just say that, and that's what we've communicated to everybody, and that's still the case. The fired reporters were told they did not have the skill set to continue along with the company's planned changes. And for a lot of stuff, it was even more shocking because months before that, in December 2022, Farhan had laid off three journalists in the OMG network, and staff were told that that would be all for the foreseeable future. In an email sent that day in December, Farhan said to staff that they had made assumptions about how, quote, building strong and connected communities will garner attention and desire from local advertisers. He admitted that that assumption had not yet worked for some publications. Yet, at a staff meeting also held that day, Mohammed seemed confident that they were bringing in enough revenue. Over the past month, maybe, uh, month and a half, maybe, um, we've said goodbye to, to a number of people, some on their own, some for everything else for business reasons. But, um, yeah, my, my goal is, like, this is it. I think we've got a really solid team here, and... I don't foresee us having to do anything else. So you've heard a lot from Farhan and what he's told the staff about what has happened in the company. But Canada Land has talked to 10 current and former staff members of OMG across Canada, both on and off the record. We've heard that working at OMG was, for many, a frustrating experience in which there were constant changes, layoffs, and pivots. Multiple on-background sources allege that Farhan attempted to interfere with the editorial independence of the newsletter. In one alleged incident, 
He asked newsletter staff to place a story about Tiny Capital's upcoming merger with WeCommerce at the top of the newsletter. In another, it's alleged that he asked staff to write a thank you to advertisers in the newsletter intro. According to my sources, these moves received pushback from the staff. Managing editor Jimmy Thompson, who was allegedly one of the staff who pushed back the most, was fired a week later. I put these allegations to Farhan Mohammed. He did not respond by press time. And we've heard former staff say that some of the projects they started were not given enough time to succeed, that a new venture would be started, and then suddenly canceled when the growth they expected didn't happen. One of these was The Good Newsletter, a weekly newsletter launched in early 2021 focusing on good things and community events happening in Victoria. According to several sources, the project had a very high engagement rate with subscribers and a high open rate of over 60%. Wait, wait, seriously? Open rate over 60%? It was actually 70. I was told 70, but I'm saying 60 to be safe. How how is that? I mean, if that's accurate, that is extraordinary. Yeah, anyway, so it's pretty rare in newsletters for that kind of a rate. But then management decided that they needed to get paid supporters to keep that newsletter going. So they set a goal of sounding up 500. The newsletter didn't meet the goal, and in December 2022, it was shut down. But several sources claimed that management didn't give the campaign a long enough chance to succeed. So I wanted to check this for myself. I found the Good Newsletter archives. The first mention of a paid membership campaign was in the last week of November 2022. It was mentioned again the next week, then a couple weeks later. And then a week after that, the newsletter announced that would be its final edition. I'm not an expert, but that seems maybe not quite long enough, especially during the holidays. I mean, it sounds like they gave it overall time to succeed, I guess, two years, but then seemingly as a last-ditch effort, like, shit, we got to get people to pay for this. And something that I guess had been free for quite some time, or people used to receiving for free, it's quite an abrupt change. So it's hard to say whether it was like a realistic expectation. Were they set up to fail? I don't know. Probably not. I'm sure they would much rather have succeeded. But yeah, once again, that's an ambitious target. Yeah. Then there was the podcast Decomplicated. Hi, I'm Carol Eugene Park, and I'm Ramnik Johal. This is Decomplicated. Two young journalists, fresh out of J school, were hired by OMG to start a podcast that would explain what was happening in the news. They launched in March 2021. Just three months later, the podcast was shuttered and the journalists let go. Farhan emailed staff saying that the podcast was started based on assumptions about what younger people wanted in news, but that he eventually thought about how, quote, the setup is as important as the idea itself. While all this was happening, there were talks of a union. According to several sources, OMG staff began talking about forming a union starting around the spring of 2022. And then last week, one day after the four journalists at Capital Daily were let go, workers signed union cards to join CWA Canada, forming the Overstory Media Guild. Here's Martin Bowman, a current reporter with The Coast in Halifax and an organizer with the OMG Union. I was seeing, and I think we were seeing, at times Overstory straying from its initial promise of what it attracted us uh, in being, a, a place where you know, journalists could come and do their best work and be you know, well paid for it and fairly paid for it, a place where you know, editorial decisions were left to editorial folks. That felt to me like the promise. And this, you know, union is, is in part at least about having Overstory uphold that initial promise of being 
a place where people can do great work and are and are trusted to do the work that they know best uh, without too much interference or or straying from that vision. And I should jump in here just to note that Candlelight employees are also members of CWA Canada, which stands for Communications Workers of America Canada. In the recent Twitter sprees, Mohammed and Wilkinson have denied that the firings were because of an upcoming union vote. Wilkinson actually said he had been aware of the union drive in 2022. Whereas Muhammad, when asked on Twitter by at the shoe lady 33 whether he was aware they were organizing, answered no. Now, I've heard several different takes on this from current and former staff. Some say they believe management isn't telling the truth. Others say the union probably had nothing to do with the firings. Here's Zoe Ducklow, a reporter for the West Shore and Capital Daily. It's possible. I know that OMG knew that we were organizing, but I don't know if they knew anything about the timeline. I really can't say if they're connected. But in that pitch deck that The Logic got a hold of in mid-2022, OMG did say that one of the reasons that they could be able to scale up and in theory have profit margins mimicking those of old school newspapers at a fraction of the cost was, and this is The Logic's paraphrase, thanks in part to its operations costing less than those of legacy publishers, including an all-digital approach, no physical newsrooms, and no unions. So it was um, a selling point for them. Seemingly. Now, we've heard a lot more from former employees about what it was like to work with Andrew and Farhan. But unfortunately, you won't hear from them. That's because OMG employees, upon being let go, are usually given an offer, get the legally mandated amount of severance, or sign a non-disparagement agreement saying you won't speak badly about the company and get a lot more in severance pay. Even further, the agreement prevents signatories from mentioning the existence of the agreement. So they can't even say if a non-disparagement agreement exists. Jonathan, in your experience, are these kinds of agreements normal in media? I mean, even if I'd signed one at one point, I wouldn't be able to tell you, right? But I haven't, nor have I ever personally been presented with one. I'd say it's like fairly common generally when employees are dismissed from certain kinds of professional environments for an employer to present them with certain terms in exchange for a larger payout than the law or their contract might entitle them to. And a non-disparagement clause is usually a pretty standard part of that package of terms. But if you don't see it as much in media and candidates, probably mostly because most of the largest outlets are unionized and collective agreements already provide for things better than the legal minimum. And it's just like there's nothing to sign when you're let go. You're already getting that in most cases. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them 
treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. OMG's founders have said a lot about the financial status of the company. But a lot of these things have been pretty confusing. Mohammed has said several times over the past couple of years that Capital Daily was profitable. Like, for example, on this panel with the Canadian Journalism Foundation in September 2022. And so we've seen that, you know, our flagship Capital Daily, it's a profitable publication. We have, I think, almost 10 people working on that thing now. The Logic reported that the OMG pitch deck claimed Capital Daily was profitable from 2021 to 2022. However, on February 3rd of this year, Andrew said on Twitter that Capital Daily had not ever been profitable, but it did break even for a time. He also said that the business, OMG overall, had lost $5 million, most of which was his personal money, and that it continued to lose. Another seemingly inconsistent thing is the question of ownership of OMG. In July 2022, The Logic reported that Tiny Capital Andrew Wilkinson's multi-million dollar holding company, was OMG's majority shareholder, and OMG was listed as majority-owned on the Tiny website. That's at least until last December, when it appears to have been taken down. And in a tweet the other week, Andrew said that Overstory is not part of Tiny. I'm not sure what's going on here, whether Tiny still owns Overstory or if the ownership has changed. I've asked him, and he hasn't responded. But it is interesting, in the context of Tiny going public, which is set to happen very soon. But it's like it's interesting. It's not an IPO, but it's rather merging with one of the companies it owns that is already listed on the TSX Venture Exchange. And by merging with this company, WeCommerce, it gets to itself be listed. And the new company will also be called Tiny. So it's like absorbing it. I don't know, with some sort of blob-like. Maybe it's not a blob, but I don't know, some sort of amoeba-like osmosis. The merger plans were announced on January 23rd, and within a day, the value of Wilkinson's shares in WeCommerce, just the the WeCommerce part alone, went up by something like $20 million. Wow. And then that's a fraction of it. So based on the prices in their news release of what they sort of estimate the value of this thing to be, Wilkinson's shares in this overall combined company when this goes through in April would be around, I think, but $650, $700 million. And the value, you know, once it's on the stock market, the value could will probably go up beyond that. And then, you know, that might push him beyond the, the billion mark. Right. And several news stories are actually already referring to him as a billionaire. And I think it's a descriptor that Wilkinson is kind of particular about. So in reporting this story, I sent him a text asking if we could talk. He replied that I should instead send questions to Farhan. And then he added this. He said, one note on my end, 
I'm not a billionaire. One thing to know about Andrew Wilkinson is that he um, literally idolizes Warren Buffett. And by literally idolizes Warren Buffett, I mean that he figuratively idolizes Warren Buffett. And also that he quite literally manufactures and sells bronze busts of Warren Buffett. They go for $1,299 US each at BerkshireNerds.store. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway being the name of Warren Buffett's main company. It says, handcrafted in the USA, these busts are the perfect centerpiece for your office or gift to a fellow Berkshire groupie. And the first question in the FAQ is, will my bust give me investment advice? The answer, no, but if you press your hand to it and channel Warren and Charlie, the answer you are looking for may come to you. Charlie is Charlie Munger, the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, and they also sell a bust of him. Goodness knows there are worse billionaires to look up to than Warren Buffett. I mean, he you know, famously advocates for higher taxes on the super rich like himself, which is you know, certainly rare among billionaires. And kind of like that, Andrew very much wants to be seen as a good rich person and to show that it is possible to be a good rich person, to acquire a lot of wealth and do good things with it and not be evil. I mean, presumably not subscribing to the idea that every billionaire is a policy failure, but that billionaires can be, in fact, be virtuous. And he appears on a lot of podcasts about billionaires and always talking to people about money stuff. Reboot, I had spent a year going through the world of high finance, meeting all these billionaires, super successful people, and realizing what made me sad was that these are the people that have reached the very top. And they're all still striving. They're all still looking up. They're all still comparing. I remember I once spoke to a person that's worth $2 billion, and he made an offhand comment talking about some other billionaire who's worth $20 billion. He goes, oh my God, he's so rich. And I said, hold on a second, you're worth $2 billion. What can he do that you can't do? And the guy just kind of goes a bit glassy-eyed and quiet and he goes, he can buy a super yacht. And I was just like, this is insane, right? Like, where does this end, right? And I think- He's someone who, uh, like his story is, you know, a guy from Victoria, he ran a website called Mac Teens back when he was a teen. What is Mac Teens? Mac Teens, he wasn't the founder, but it was a Web 1.0 fan community for teenagers who were into Apple computers. Then he went to Ryerson for journalism, dropped out shortly after he started, later saying that it was partly because, like, the professors were talking to him in general how poor prospects in media would be and how they're going to make $35,000 forever and it was going to be shit and whatever. And this was, this was back in, like, 2004, 2005 when... There was a little bit of hope left in the world. But basically, he moved back home, started doing some, like, web design-type things, created a agency and consultancy, and sort of snowballed and grew and grew, and then eventually to the point where he was starting things and acquiring things and investing and owning pieces and just trading around and growing and growing and growing his wealth and his portfolio. And... While he is not a billionaire, the value of all of the companies he's invested in put together almost certainly does exceed $1 billion. I think a lot of this is really interesting in the context of OMG needing to secure growth and the difference between a normal business's growth and a media company's growth. As I mentioned before, a week after the initial all-staff in which Farhan fielded questions, and a few days after he went on a Twitter spree saying journalists didn't want to understand business, he held another all-staff meeting. And here's what he said. I was speaking directly about, and so this is, yeah, Twitter's a, uh, I mean, at a certain point last week, I just shut down Twitter, took it off my phone, should have done that from the very beginning. Um, 
a lot of that crap that came out last week about journalists not at this company and who were putting out all these stories on us, like there was so much of a lack of understanding and it was so crystal clear that a large number of journalists just don't understand how business works, don't care to know how business works. You need to make money in order to hire people. Farid made an effort to explain how business works. Well, how his business works. We as a company are burning about $250,000 a month right now. We're trying to lower that. Um, the more revenue we bring in, the more our runway gets extended. I want us to be in a point where we've got 12 to 24 months. I think we've built phenomenal products. I think we've built phenomenal publications. We've got over a quarter million subscribers today across the company. Like We've got something there, but the flip side is like, well, it's not good enough if we're not making enough money. Beyond Capital Daily being this blossoming flower, it's not outwardly evident what it was that they were basing the replicability of the situation, that they would be able to both continue scaling that up at the same rate and reproducing that success elsewhere. It's a cool idea, but, I mean, it's something you see a lot of in in media and business and politics generally is, like, is a person, usually a rich guy, who believes that they have an answer that no one else has, or a solution that no one else has tried or figured out so far, and that there is this self-possession, this idea that, like, there's some unique insight, some really clever ideas, one brilliant thing that if that actually worked, like there wouldn't already be, you know, 100 people trying it or doing it. It's not easy to make money off of media, let alone have it break even. And there's a reason why things are going down. It's not just because they have unions and newsprint. <laughs> I think it's really telling the, the way that journalists themselves don't really try to do these things. We just know too much. Yeah, there's a, I mean, the, as you said, like Andrew Wilkinson has like, 80 tweets in the past bit, but there's, you know, one one of many, 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 I'm going to hone in on from one of these threads. We are guilty of being overly optimistic. If you want to dunk on us for hoping we can hire a lot of journalists and build something great, go for it. Anyone can hope to hire a lot of journalists and build something great. I think we all hope to hire a lot of journalists and build something great. It's the hiring a lot of journalists and building something great. That's that's where the... um. That, that's where the prize is. That's where the merit is. It's like, that's oh, where it gets like So I don't, I'm glad you hope to hire a lot of journalists to build something great. We all do. If it were that easy, a lot of us would have hired a lot of journalists and built something great. Yeah. I really wonder how much they understood about the industry before they tried this. But I actually sent questions to them about how much they knew, their financials, and ownership, and they did not respond by press time. But I did speak to Aaron Miller, now the CEO of IndieGraph Media, and was a former CEO and founder of The Discourse. In her time with The Discourse, she'd been very public about the various successes and failures of trying to build multiple local bureaus across BC. She said she'd actually met with Andrew before he launched, and that he really seemed like he wanted some insight. I met Andrew initially before he was just kind of getting into the Capital Daily thing. I think he's genuinely wanted and wants to, like, make a positive impact. Like, I don't think any of that is cynical. I don't think he just came into this thing, like, to make money or something. Like, obviously, the guy knows how to make money, and this isn't the best way to do it. There was just, like, a ton of different people that he was speaking to at that time, trying to understand the journalism space. So, like, he talked to a lot of people before he decided, like, kind of who to align with, and he chose to align with Farhan, and, and then also make the investment in 
Canada Land, which was interesting. I mean, Farhan was actually the editor-in-chief for a long time of Daily Hive. Formerly known as Van City Buzz. So he was the editor-in-chief during their expansion. So they started in Vancouver, and then they kind of expanded to a bunch more Canadian cities. And what they did was fun news, what's going on in the city, things to do, restaurants, that kind of thing. And if you were in Toronto, you could think of it as sort of like BlogTO, but without that like little shred of wit that BlogTO has. But Farhan's track record is around these fun lifestyle-based sites, so it was interesting that Andrew chose him. I mean, speaking of media transformations and failures, I have my own experience at the Star in 2018. The Toronto Star launched its big Canadian expansion, and they set up bureaus in Halifax, Edmonton, Calgary, other places. Their promises were pretty big. They said they wanted to invest in investigative enterprise news, local audiences. They wanted to make a big impact on the community. Are you saying that Calgary wasn't thrilled with the Toronto Star brand coming to their town? <laughs> like, oh, it's the Toronto Star. Wow, we had the big time now. Well, they, they did disguise their name. In each city, it was called Star, and then whatever city it was in, I was hired at the Star Vancouver. I was hired as a staff reporter, but that didn't last very long. After less than two years, they closed the bureau, laid off everyone. Management basically said that they weren't bringing in enough money. Disappointing, to say the least. And we talk about the Toronto Star a lot here, but it's really famous for, over the years, it's big swings that don't pay off. There's always, like the, the very least, a grudging respect. I was like, well, at least they tried something. I mean, you know, obviously Star Touch is something that people, a lot of people remember, is that Four Star, the parent company, had owned Harlequin Books for a long time. Then they sold that, and they used a big chunk of the money to launch this tablet product called Star Touch, which would be like this, this the whole thing designed specifically for tablets to be read every day. But they went big right away, and then it, it wasn't sustainable because no one wanted this. I mean, it was modeled on what La Presse does in Montreal, and God knows how that works. Star Touch in Toronto, instead of like starting small and then like scaling up, just you know, starting small to test if there was a market or if people wanted the product, they went big, and it was a flop. Speaking of the Star, recently the Star transformed yet again. In 2020, Paul Rivet and Jordan Batov bought the Star. And in a recent documentary about the whole takeover, it's clear these two have competing visions about the news industry. But of is about the journalism. He talks a lot about the value of journalism as a public good. But Rivet kind of takes a different approach, one that sees journalism and business as sort of tied together. The days of the past where you could have a newsroom separate from the bean counters or the newsroom separate from from the the sales force or that that can't work. It needs to be a, a modern, profitable business. We should put with the sign Toronto Star News and Information Technology Company or something like that. <laughs> For a lot of journalists, this kind of thinking is blasphemous. The lines between the business side and the journalism side should never be crossed, as a lot of folks would say. But his statements seem to sort of echo what Farhan has said in the staff meeting tape about journalists not wanting to know about business, about the importance of bringing in revenue. So when they got the start, their plan was to do something with e-gaming and gambling, and they had some sort of plan. And then by last fall, when it came out in court documents that the two owners were at each other's throats, it became very clear that whatever plan they had had for the star when they first took it over in mid-2020 
uh, had, had totally fallen apart. That no, it was not as straightforward or as easy as they had thought or hoped it would be, whatever ideas they had about using these other sources to make revenue. I think they, they had or have a parcel service now that I guess did not work. And there were competing visions about what to do next and some, you could, I guess you could call it panicking. And there are just so many examples of people just coming in and thinking, well, if we just hook up journalism with this other business, we can use that money to get this. And, you know, maybe, but if it were that easy, people would have done it already. So recently, this whole Rivet debacle kind of was resolved, and the resolution was that Rivet would take over iPolitics and QP briefing to a smaller political papers. Can you tell me, Jonathan, what's been happening lately with those? Well, Sherry's. We'll talk about this more on Wiley Dog, which is coming out on Wednesday. So iPolitics, that was a long-running Ottawa insider publication subscription online thingy. Torstar bought that a few years ago. QP Briefing, which stands for Queen's Park Briefing, is a paid subscription slash paywalled service for like high-level Queen's Park information. It kind of fell apart last week. Let's just say it crumbled uh, with the odd spectacle of, okay, if there are some layoffs, that's bad enough. But then its editor-in-chief and one of its reporters quit, very publicly stating that they were doing so on principle. And we soon learned that it had to do with editorial interference around a story that concerned the premier of Ontario and his family's relationships with developers. It's interesting how two ventures who have more business-minded people at their helm are now somewhat flailing after accusations of interference. Yeah. Yeah. As journalists, I think we value news for the public good. We value largely news that people count on, you know, in-depth, investigative news. We all think those things are super important. But is it sustainable? Is it profitable? For most of the history of news publishing, of course, the cost of the journalism was propped up by revenues from advertising, including from classified ads, which was an effective model so long as there weren't a whole lot of other places for businesses to advertise. But now there are. Aaron Miller told me that the problem with these new approaches, where business needs of a venture might get mixed up with editorial, is that she believes that trust is the core of the business. One of the massive mistakes that our industry has made in terms of our business model is treating the audience as the product rather than as the consumer of a product and like selling their attention, selling your influence with them, etc. And through, you know, advertising and, you know, whatever else. Native content or just the old tactic of like, you know, the rich guy owning the press, the old, old fashioned stuff, you know, not new. And the problem with that is that that worked as long as media, news media was like the only way to reach people, right? But now that that's been completely disrupted and, you know, our attention online is like, you know, we're competing with video games, we're competing with, you know, cat videos, we're competing with YouTube stuff, like my recipe app, like whatever. Like there's just a million different ways that that you can be reached now, like we no longer have a monopoly over people's attention. So as like news producers, we need to shift to thinking about what we're doing as like providing a valuable product, building trust in that product and a brand around it so that folks like 
trust it and want to support it and like believe in it. And for me, like that's the core of the business. Aaron also told me about how these failures to produce promised profitable models of journalism make it so much harder for other ventures to raise new capital. But the thing that's like kind of bigger and more systemic is that like Andrew put $5 million into this company and there's a lot of investors that were watching him. So for that just to go and like completely fail is bad for the investment environment. Like that means that it will be harder for other entrepreneurs to raise capital to try to do digital media stuff because they're like, well, Andrew Wilkinson tried this and it didn't work. BuzzFeed is like a famous recent example where they just got so big and so really good thanks to venture capital. And then when it didn't manage to scale up at the rate that a big tech company does, where the growth is not, I don't know, exponential is not the right word, but it doesn't just skyrocket and kind of stagnates and maybe even dips, you know, the investors kind of panic because like, oh, this is not what usually happens. I mean, in any enterprise, scaling up to that many employees in two years is wild. It does happen in tech, but I mean, I don't know what percentage of tech companies actually succeed. And the idea that you can take that logic of extraordinary fast growth that seems to work, at least for some tech companies, and apply it to pretty much any other industry, but certainly journalism, is, well, it's it's ambitious. Especially when they think they have the answer and have kind of held themselves up as like, we got it, we're going to do it. We figured this thing out, and, you know, journalism saved. That's your Candland. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Candleland merch, invites, and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to candleland.com slash join. You can email our regular host, Jesse, at jesse at candleland.com. He reads them all. We're on Twitter at Candleland. Our website is at candleland.com. This episode was reported by me, and Jonathan Goldsby. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our managing editor is Annette Igiofo. I'm your host, Cherie Sutran. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Candleland ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>